You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. The scripture reading this afternoon is taken from a number of different places. We start with Genesis 17, 1 to 8, where the word of our God reads, When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abraham fell face down and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abraham. Your name will be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. To be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you are now an alien, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you. And I will be their God. Then we turn to Ezekiel chapter 16, 20 to 22. And the Lord says, You took your sons and daughters whom you bore to me and sacrificed them as food to the idols. Was your prostitution not enough? You slaughtered my children and sacrificed them to the idols in all your detestable practices and your prostitution. You did not remember the days of your youth and you were naked and bare, kicking about in your blood. Then we turn to Acts chapter 2, 36 to 41. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children And for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them, and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Over the years, the ministry of the gospel has yielded more than a few traumatic experiences. One of the most severe happened in my first congregation when I received a phone call. Yes, always those dreaded phone calls. I received a phone call in the evening that one of the youngest members of the congregation, a baby boy of several months, 
to die very suddenly without warning. As if that was not devastating enough, it happened while the parents were out and a young babysitter was taking care of the children. Needless to say, there were suddenly a lot of distraught people. The parents, the other children in the family, grandparents, friends, all were desperately searching for some sliver of comfort in a tragedy so heart-wrenching and so unexpected. And then we have not even mentioned the babysitter under whose watch it had happened and who was blaming herself for putting the baby on his back when the parents had told to put him on his stomach. So what does one do as a rookie pastor in the face of such overwhelming sadness and grief? Is there a balm in Gilead for such situations? Is there meaning to impart and sense to dispense? Is there a word, a message, a passage of Holy Writ that will console and comfort? Thankfully there is, for the word of our God is rich with comfort. It can be found in the Psalms, in the Prophets, the Gospels, the Epistles. In short, it can be found almost everywhere in the word of God. But not only in the word of God, it can also be found in our confessions. Confessions which echo the word so faithfully and so well. Think of the ending of the Apostles' Creed that we've sung together. Think of Lord's Day 1 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Think of Article 37 of the Belgic Confession. Oh, and think too of Article 17 of the first head of doctrine in the Canons of Dort. Not too familiar with it? Well, let's read it together. Turn with me to page 539 of your book of praise. Article 17, entitled Children of Believers Who Die in Infancy. And there it says, we must judge concerning the will of God from his word, which declares that the children of believers are holy not by nature, but in virtue of the covenant of grace, in which they are included with their parents. Therefore, God-fearing parents ought not to doubt the election and salvation of their children, whom God calls out of this life in their infancy. Beloved, reflecting on these words, I would like to preach to you on the following theme this afternoon. What are we to think of the infants of believers who die? We're going to see this is a matter of some controversy. This is also a matter of status, and finally it's a matter of comfort. Well, beloved, we have now dealt with almost all of the articles of the first chapter of the Canons of Dort, or the first head of Doctrine. And in a way, you can see they all kind of flow and they all sort of fit together. Except that is for Article 17. Stuck right in between articles dealing with reprobation and adoration 
we have this article about children who die in infancy. Now, seeing that, you might be inclined to ask, what is it doing there? How did it get there? And why all of a sudden do the canons make this detour and decide to speak about the salvation of children? Well, the answer to those questions, beloved, lies in history. Way back in the 17th century when the Calvinists and the Arminians were busy debating their theological differences, a meeting of 40 Arminian ministers was held. And in the course of their discussions, objections were raised to the doctrine of election, and the matter of the deaths of infants came up. And as a result, they wrote that they objected strenuously to the idea that the Calvinists were saying that because of God's election and reprobation, even some children of covenant people who were baptized into Christ and who had died were damned. The Calvinist doctrine, they said, was sending covenant children who died to hell. That such a charge was being made against the Calvinists can also be seen from the conclusion of the canons. You find that in page 575 as well as 576 at the end. There on page 575 you find a list of accusations that the Arminians were circulating against the Calvinists And one of them pertains to infants. Look at the very bottom paragraph of page 575. Many innocent children of believers are torn from their mother's breasts and tyrannically thrown into hell so that neither the blood of Christ nor their baptism nor the prayers of the church at their baptism can be of any help to them. Notice the language is rather charged. It refers to children being torn from their mother's breasts and it speaks about being tyrannically thrown into hell. And such words and expressions were originally the words that were being bandied about by the Arminians. Some of them were doing their level best to raise the temperature of the debate by more than just a few degrees. And they were hoping that if Scripture could not win the day, then perhaps emotional arguments and exaggerations would do so. And emotional, beloved, it was. The death of children has always been so. It's so today. But I would remind you this afternoon, it was especially so in those early days of the canons Living as we do in the 21st century and in a country like Canada, we do not always take into account that in times past, and even still today in other parts of the world, infant mortality is a huge issue and a grim reality. A study of ancient records reveals that in Europe of the 16th to 17th century, 
Only somewhere between 15 to 30 percent of children were born alive. In other words, 70 to 85 percent miscarried or were stillborn. And in addition, of the children born alive, about 18% died between the ages of one and five years of age. The result was that it was not unusual for a woman to experience many miscarriages and many stillbirths. And if she did have live children, many of them would die before reaching adulthood. And if you doubt this high rate of infant mortality, all you have to do, beloved, is go back in your own family tree and you will discover the same. Some time ago I was visiting with an elderly sister in the congregation and she was telling me about the olden days and about how many of the children of her grandparents never made it to term or died in infancy. Yes, and that grim reality is still out there. Visit some of the less developed countries in this world today and you will still be horrified to see how many children die before birth or shortly after birth. Well, now, beloved, in such a world filled with infant deaths, it's easy to see that the accusation of the Arminians stung deeply and upset many. Calvinists, they said, were consigning the children of believers to hell. But were they? Were they really? Not at all. The charge, beloved, was entirely false. Yes, and to testify to that fact, it was decided to add Article 17 to the canons. And just in case you missed it, it was also refuted in the conclusion of the canons. But how was it refuted? How does Article 17 refute the false charge of the the Arminians? What sort of arguments does it use? Well, a closer look at the actual wording of the article may help. It begins, we must judge concerning the will of God from his word. Quite simply, the authors are saying, ours is not going to be an argument based on emotions or feelings. It's not going to appeal to psychology, neither is it going to tell bereaved parents what they want to hear. No, what we need to do is go to the will of God. What does God say? What does God tell us? What principles does he lay out for us in his holy word? Yes, and to find that out, of course, we turn to his word. From his word we learn his will. And from his word we also learn about the destiny and the future of our children. So what does that word say? What do the canons say about that word? 
Well, it declares that the children of believers are holy not by nature, but in virtue of the covenant of grace in which they are included with their parents. Now, that's quite a mouthful. What is it saying? Well, in the first place, beloved, we need to pay attention to what it is not saying. It is not saying that our children are holy by nature. In other words, it is not as if the children are believers are a notch above the rest of humanity. It is not as if they are nicer, smarter, better looking, or morally superior. So have any of you parents here this afternoon think that your children are a cut above the rest? You need to think again. They're just as sinful by nature, just as dead in trespass, just as inclined to all evil as all other children. And if you insist on thinking otherwise, you're only fooling yourself, plus setting yourself up for a huge disappointment one day soon. But then, beloved, if our children are not holy by nature, how else can they be holy? Well, the canons declare there is another way. They can be holy in virtue, it says, of the covenant of grace. And now we have already seen that that word holy that's used here, and it's used in the form of baptism and elsewhere, that word doesn't mean superior, but it also doesn't mean sinless or safe. Rather, that word holy used here means, biblically speaking, to be separated from sin and dedicated to God. It's a word that, among other things, has to do with status. It's a word that assures us and reminds us that our children are special, not because of their nature, and not because of what is in them, but because together with their parents, they are included in God's covenant of grace. Now, how do we know that? Where do we get that from? From Scripture, beloved. The Bible tells us so. Turn with me once again to Genesis chapter 17. Look at verse 7. I will establish, that's God speaking to Abraham, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. Notice that our God doesn't say to Abraham, I am making my covenant with you my friend, and you only. No, he says this covenant will include Abraham and his descendants. 
It will include the generations that come after him and flow from him. Why, God even says it twice. God's covenant is made with the father of all believers and with his seed. Well, let's take our Bibles again. Let's look this time at Psalm 22. We didn't read it together, but turn to Psalm 22, the verses 9 and 10. Page 860 in your pew Bible. And notice what it says in Psalm 22, the verses 9 and 10. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast upon you from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Do we hear what David is saying here? You'll notice David is not using the language of revivalist Christianity from the day I made a decision for you. You have been my God. Now he uses covenantal language. He uses the language of the generations. And turn with me next, beloved, to Ezekiel chapter 16. Page 1305. Ezekiel 16, 20 and 21. And you took your sons and daughters whom you bore to me and sacrificed them as food to the idols. Was your prostitution not enough? You slaughtered my children and sacrificed them to the idols. What an awful, disgusting thing to do. Here the inhabitants of Judah are accused by God of, of burning and of killing their own children. And what is God saying? You can feel the pain. These were my children. They belonged to me. They were in covenant with me. They were circumcised. They were mine. Yet you sacrificed them to foreign gods. I simply, beloved, they were not just anybody's children. They were God's children. And of course, one could say, yes, but all of those examples are from the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, things are entirely different. We're operating under an entirely new set of principles and guidelines. Well, all right, let's look at that too. Matthew 19, verse 14. Matthew 19, page 15, 28, 15, 29, where the Lord Jesus says, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. When he had placed his hands on them, he went on from there. Interesting, the Lord Jesus here does not agree with his disciples. 
They were of the opinion, get these snot-nosed kids out of here. The master is far too busy to deal with the likes of these rugrats. In short, they were of the opinion that these children had no status, no place, no relevance. But you can see the Lord Jesus disagrees most emphatically. He welcomes them. He blesses them. He even holds them up as role models. The kingdom of heaven, he says, belongs to them and to those who are like them. And finally, you can turn with me again to Acts chapter 2, verse 39. Where Peter says, the promise is for you and your children and to all who are far off for all whom the Lord our God will call. What promise is Peter speaking about? By the promise of the forgiveness of sins. The promise that opens the door to a restored relationship to God. The promise that leads to salvation, righteousness, and eternal life. Yes, and that promise, Peter also says, is for all of those Jews gathered there on that Pentecost day long ago. And it is also for all of those who still are going to be called from the nations. And notice he says, it is there for your children. And you know, of course, these, this is the language that God originally spoke to Abraham. And it shows us the language of the New Testament is not really different from the language of the Old Testament. We're not speaking here about a different God, a different salvation, a different approach. The God of the covenant is still our God. And he is still addressing all those who are in his covenant and he is still reminding them that they belong to him. In short, you have the promise. You, your children, and the believers to come. You all have it. Well, beloved, when we now take all of these biblical passages as well as others that haven't been cited and could have been cited together, What is the inescapable conclusion? It is that believers and their seeds stand in a special relationship with God. They all belong to Him. They all bear His stamp. Or as the Belgian Confession says, His mark and His emblem. Or as the Catechism says, His sign and His seal. They're all in God's covenant of grace. And so what are we to think of our little ones who die? What are we to conclude when a child is born stillborn? Or like that infant mentioned earlier in our introduction who succumbed to Sid, sudden infant death syndrome. What are we to say when one of our children is so so severely handicapped that they cannot respond? 
Shall we in all of those cases say we don't know about you? God is silent about you, about your status, about your fate. Or worse yet, shall we say none of you have been able or are able to make a credible confession of faith and therefore you are all damned? What a monstrous conclusion. No, we shall argue from out of the perspective of God's covenant. These children are God's children. They belong to Him. Yes, and whoever belongs to Him need not fear, and neither need their loved ones fear. God will not forget them, overlook them, or shove them aside. No, should they die before they are born, or at birth, or a few months or years after birth, the Heavenly Father who has claimed them will save them and welcome them home. God-fearing parents ought not to doubt the election and salvation of their children whom God calls out of this life their infancy. How true, how comforting, how consoling. But at the same time, beloved, let us also be clear about something else as well. And it is this. The canons here, according to the Holy Scriptures, are speaking about the children of believers and about God-fearing parents. In other words, we are not making this claim about everyone, every parent, and neither can everyone find comfort here. It would be presumptuous for those who do not believe in the grace of Almighty God, or for those who are no more than nominal Christians, desire to claim this about their children. And I know, I know we need to be careful here. I am not allowed to make any judgment about the children of unbelievers and token Christians who die. And neither are you. That's the Lord's business. And that's a matter of the Lord's great mercy. I will, however, beloved, dare to assert that for those parents who are in Christ, There is no need to fear and every reason to be comforted. Very deep in the pages of the Old Testament we come across something instructive in the life of King David. It's a story that's recorded for us in 2 Samuel chapter 12. After the death of Uriah, David took his wife, Bathsheba, and made her his wife. In due time, she was expecting and she bore him a son, but shortly after the son was born, it appeared that he was very sickly on the edge of death. All the while, David beseeched the Lord. 
He fasted and he prayed day and night. The Lord, however, did not answer his prayer as he so devoutly desired and did not save the life of that child. And it says in verse 18 of 2 Samuel, changed his clothes, went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Worshipped the God of Israel. The second thing that it says in this chapter that is noteworthy is that he says to his servants who are puzzled about his behavior while the child was still alive, I fasted and I wept. And I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him. But he will not return to me. The third thing that is noteworthy here is what we find at the beginning of verse 24 of this chapter where it says, Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba. Now how does one explain this kind of behavior? Would you not expect David to be in utter despair? And that surely what his servants all around him anticipated, the king is going to be beyond words if his son dies. The king will blame himself and he will say, my son died for my sin and God has surely sent him straight to hell. But that's not David's reaction at all. Instead, after the death of his son, it says in scriptures, He worshipped the Lord. He confessed, I will go to him. And he comforts his wife. Now what is that? I would say to you, that is a God-fearing parent who has sinned much, but who has repented in dust and ashes. And who knows that God is not taking out his sin on his son. Now as a covenant child and as a forgiven sinner, David knows where his son is. He's with the Lord. Out of that perspective, he is able to comfort his wife. And indeed, what other perspective is there? Yes, and it is out of that covenantal perspective that we too must find our comfort. Our children today are sanctified in Christ, the mediator of the covenant. And should they die in their infancy, he will save them. 
and he will receive them home. Quite a number of you know what it is like to experience the death of a child or a grandchild. And I may say to you, take heart and do not doubt the election and salvation of your children. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.